This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. The most significant trait that resulted in happiness was just feeling loved at home. My wife and myself, we focus on a lot of things that it turns out are probably not as important as we believe, whether it's trying to get them into school A or B or get them the right soccer coach and the right soccer team. At the end of the day, what turns out mattering the most is just a child feeling like the parents love them. Dory one, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 87. Today in the podcast, we have Dr. Eric Wan, Harvard-trained doctor, Navy flight surgeon before becoming CTO of Boeing Airsprace. He is now the president and CMO of Wave Neuroscience. Eric and his team at Wave Neuro are the world-leading experts in brain health, brain injury, PTSD, depression, anxiety, to speak to a few. They pioneered tech that involves using computational analytics to solve problems that they've never been tackled before in the mental health space and doing it with no medications of any kind. They've partnered with many of the organizations that you might be familiar with, United States Special Operations Command, Brain Treatment Foundation, Infinite Hero Foundation, All Eagles Oscar Foundation, Texas A&M University, to name a few. Guys, today's conversation goes knee-deep into an area that I know is close to anybody that has PTSD or suffers from PTSD. I'm bringing you this episode and this conversation to open up a different path to know and help you identify that you what you feel in your head isn't something that you're crazy about and that there's actually science out there that Eric talks about and how to analytically find out what that is and help retune it to get it operating at a better frequency. We dive into some of the areas of Eric being a dad and go into the, some of the general dad conversations we talk about in the podcast. But man, this episode does not disappoint and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Wan. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. We don't often get to too many people in your space coming in the podcast, but I'm super excited because this topic is super focused on veterans, PTSD, sleep, and being able to just be a better dad. So go ahead and a little tell about yourself, your family, and what your life looks like right now. Oh, sure. So uh, my name is Eric Wan. I'm a husband and I'm father to five children, ages 18 to six. Uh, my oldest is my son, uh, Brendan. He's going to turn 18 in October, and then I have four beautiful girls. Uh, your podcast really resonated with me because I think, especially in post-service life, but probably should be within service too, being good father is always sort of an aspirational goal. And it's not necessarily something we talk about enough. And so I appreciate the message and, and the mission of your podcast and really excited to be on it. In terms of the company and where we're working towards WAVE and improve uh, sleep and improving human performance, the company is called WAVE Neuroscience. We're a translational neuroscience company, innovating technologies to help people function better neurologically and behaviorally. And one of the building blocks of that we'll talk about is, is kind of getting higher quality sleep and just protecting these areas of our life that lead towards better, both long-term health outcomes, but also better function on a day-to-day basis. I just read an article today, which is probably some of the most positive news I've read about during COVID, is that there was a Harvard Business Review study that said 68% of dads are more engaged with their child's life through since COVID started. Like if that's like, that was like, it's not a small number, like 68%, that's like monumental shift in how engaged dads are with their kids' lives now. Like that's, 
it was a huge win in my book for what we're taking away from COVID. And it's why this podcast existed because active duty veteran, all of it, everybody needs to understand that being a dad is one of the most awesomest titles you get and the privilege and you need to step up to it and rise up to it every day. So I appreciate you that feedback and enjoying the podcast and checking it out before coming on the podcast as well. I want to ask one question leading up to where you are today. You know a lot of fancy stuff. You study a lot of things that most people don't even think about. How did you get to that point where you were the guy trying to figure this out? Such a great question. I don't know that it's anything that I had really set out to do. This was, I think, just kind of uh, the natural arc, I guess, of of my medical career. And I think a lot of it is just this is where you know science is advancing so rapidly right now. I guess to rewind a little bit during my service days in the second Gulf War, my squadron, we were HMM 268 and we deployed as the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, but we had some of the first casualties of the second Gulf War. And as a byproduct of that, many of my closest friends and buddies uh, were struggling, uh, sometimes quietly and in isolation, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, some depression and anxiety. And it was really only through our community of friends that um, we could try to reach out to some of these folks and, and to help. And while my training was in emergency medicine and preventive medicine and occupational medicine, of course, you know, the brothers and sisters we uh, connect with and service, uh, you know, are lifelong friends. And I, I just felt very committed to helping them. So sort of searching for answers and how to help them. I've kind of ended up uh, walking down this road of not just looking for non-pharmaceutical adjuncts to help them uh, along their healing journey, but also surveying the landscape to find technologies that could help them. And, uh, and so that's kind of how I ended up uh, where I am. But along the, that road, you find out there are many, uh, whether it's uh, just habits or behaviors that could uh, help out in, in sometimes fairly profound ways that we don't always think about, whether that's kind of uh, sleep or mindfulness or or meditation. And, and so kind of becoming an advocate for everyone to engage those kind of behaviors has, has become part of the mission. Let's fast forward just a little bit. Part of what you've untapped is something called magnetic e-resonance therapy. Go ahead and unpack a little bit about what that means and what is behind that fancy name. Oh, sure. And so magnetic e-resonance therapy, also officially called MERT or MyWave TMS, TMS standing for transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's, it's a personalized neuromodulation technology. So transcranial magnetic stimulation was FDA approved for treatment resistant depression in 2008, but it's a one size fits all technology. It treats everyone at the same frequency at the same location. And just to explain that it's, delivering uh, magnetic energy pulses to an area of the brain called the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. What it's striving to do is to uh, wake up certain neurons and allow them to function a bit better. People have experienced significant improvements in their depression, and the data is roughly 40% people who are having treatment-resistant depression will go into remission, which is wonderful. And what our group has innovated is a way to use quantitative EEG, which is a brain mapping technology, and personalize the TMS experience to each individual. And just to unpack that a little bit, it's a three-step process. And the first step is getting this quantitative EEG. And it's an electrophysiologic picture of the brain, much in the same way an EKG is an electrophysiologic picture of the heart. And we're looking for specific patterns and waveforms in each individual. And we run this through computational analytics and a normative database. And just to illustrate two of the more significant data points we're looking for, one is the alpha frequency, which is the oscillatory refresh rate that your brain functions at. And so we encode information at a certain cycle rate, generally between eight and 13 hertz, which means you and myself and our other friends may encode information between eight to 13 times per second. But whether it's through the physical trauma of a blast injury or the emotional trauma of losing a loved one or you know, the chemical trauma of you know, years of hard drinking or, or drugs, we may see areas of the brain, clusters of neurons fall out of synchrony with that dominant wavelength. Uh, in one example, you may see uh, a group of neurons firing at two hertz 
in the executive function area of the brain. And if we take this TMS device and navigate to that area of the brain and give it some gentle stimulation at a frequency that's customized to yourself, instead of being at just 10 Hertz, if you, if we scan and find that you're an 11.4 Hertz brain and stimulate at 11.4 Hertz, we find that the response rate improves. And so that's, that's really what the, our organization does is we're adding to this base technology of TMS, a personalized protocol that's individualized to each unique person. Um, and we find that when we take that extra step, uh, adding some precision guidance to the treatment, we're seeing both higher response rates and higher magnitude of effect in terms of people responding. And the specific area where we've noted significant improvement is in populations of post-traumatic stress and concussion and traumatic brain injury. And, and that's part of why I made the decision to join the group is, as I'm sure you know, this, this ends up being a mission that's great importance to us and one that I wanted to become a part of. That sounds super complicated, but it sounds super awesome at the same time, because oftentimes I, it, it kind of reminds me when you go to BAS and when you have a, when you're sick, you get a Motrin and water where you get one treatment for 15 million things that you can go to BAS for. And all the doc does is say, Hey, take Motrin and water and provide in the morning. And you're taking something like Motrin and water, but actually personalizing it and making it very connected to the person and how they it's deeper. It's not just Motrin and water. And often people don't go because they just think they're going to get that. But in your case, you've taken something that was very specific and been able to dial it in, sounds like, to the actual person's almost like DNA a little bit, not in the DNA, but in the context of like the uniqueness of their fingerprint and help them on an individual level. That's, that's pretty amazing because there's so many people out there that just pray for a good night's sleep and your technology can help open that up. Like you, in your, in, in this case, a dad, like, and a lot of times you're gifting a dad to come back home to his kids because he can be present. He's not tired. He's not frustrated. He's not just depressed because he can't shake this feeling that he doesn't know why he doesn't or why he feels broken. You can kind of help wake everything back up. That's an awesome opportunity you have there. Yeah, that's, and I think that you've hit on a number of things that are of, of key importance. One is, you know, when, when veterans come in to get their EEG and, you know, they see that there may be a group of neurons that aren't firing as fast as they should, or maybe they're firing way too fast compared to uh, how the rest of their brain is operating. Many of them have, you know, been to the VA or been to, you know, DOD doctors and been told, well, your MRI looks normal or your CT looks normal and they tend to internalize it and they know something is wrong and they don't feel right. And just that ability to get a functional image and see that there is something that may be organically causing that issue, I think that's an important part of self-understanding and um, realizing that, you know, there may be more to this. This is not just me or it's not all in my head. It's not due to a lack of fortitude. There really can be underlying anatomical issues that are leading to impulsivity and for them to become angry kind of at the drop of a pin. And so that part of it, I think, has been important. But the other part, it's interesting. I think we're becoming, there are unifying principles that are allowing us to understand how people function and how you know the brain uh, responds to both injury and to, in many cases, profound sleep deprivation. And so this technology was innovated not specifically for PTSD. It was engineered to help the brain to function better and more efficiently as an engine. And it was almost as a byproduct of that that we found that it helped this community in such a meaningful way. And, you know, the FDA requires us when we do clinical trials and we try to wrap around the technology, very, very robust, academically rigorous trials, you have to look at specific indications. And so uh, we have focused on PTSD and, and concussion, but there are many people who are looking at this as a human performance technology. There's a group that are called biohackers who are looking for kind of performance edges and ways to improve their, their cognitive function. And they've kind of gravitated towards this. I don't know that the conventional label that medicine or the, or the VA or whomever people are seeing really matters all that much. I think what matters is that people feel 
better, you know, whatever they may be struggling with and specific to cognitive function, there's so much downrange uh, benefit to that. And you touched on one that's, I think, really key is allowing people to get uh, a, a good night of sleep. You know, so many, I think, people struggle to get into a, a really good circadian rhythm. You know, this technology seems to help people to get higher quality sleep. There was a thought that was coming to my mind when you were talking about the biohackers was is in some ways it's, it's probably going to, there's a group of people out there trying to awaken their brain to almost the, the Einstein type thinking or people that are already operating at a high level with their brain, like, like wondering, is this going to move me into the Einstein level? Or there's always people out there saying that we only use like 10% of your brain. Like it's probably tech like this that starts waking up those higher percentages to be able to use more of what we probably don't even know our brain's capable of doing it because it just doesn't need to do it. I, I think we're starting to work on research projects that may give us some answers to that. My initial impression is that we're not, I wouldn't view this as kind of, you know, steroids for the brain or anything along those lines. I think it, it would be more accurate uh, to say we're sort of realigning neural networks and allowing people to become the best versions of themselves. And, uh, you know, an example I would use is we had a visit at uh, U.S. Special Operations Command headquarters, and there was uh, a general who kind of curbsided us and uh, was very grateful for the work we were doing. Some of the operators who were injured, but was asking kind of this question, can you make a healthy brain uh, operate at a higher level? We didn't really know the answers to that question at the time. We now know through kind of some third-party uh, testing tools. There's one in particular called the Brain Check. It's, it's a tablet-based study you do to check reaction times and uh, memory processing skills that we can help just a bit in that arena. It's not sort of our, our dedicated mission per se, but we have seen some significant improvement in, in those scores. But I think the more common scenario is when many people, in general, I think military people, people who enroll, there's, there's a selection bias where people tend to be healthier and more fit and higher functioning than the general population. And especially with, you know, the special operations community, if they're sort of the 90%, if you were to create a bell curve of the population range and just through years of service and uh, eating charges and being in very high tempo environments, they may find their performance level drop to 65 or 70%. And to all the world, they still look like rock stars and are functioning at a very high level, but internally they know they're not at the top of their game. And inside they've lost something that they feel. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think frankly, one of the things that it's, it's almost insidious because we all do it in, in the name of service and as part of our employment cycle, but you think about going 18 time zones away from home and you're frequently in a hostile environment, you're operating at night because, you know, you have a tactical advantage with night vision goggles and nogs and you're sleeping during the day. There's fairly profound circadian rhythm disruption by design. Like that yeah, is like your it, top description. It's like a nuke almost on, on your, yeah. how yeah, your it, brain's supposed to work impossible scenario. And then you're asked to come back home and nobody really talks to you about getting back into a circadian rhythm, resyncing back with family. Um, and, and it's very hard to do. And so um, we've started coaching a lot of our, our patients, but I think that this is true for, uh, I think probably most of your audiences, we really have to find ways to honor our biology and to, um, Resynchronize back into our, our you know home environment because uh, you know so there's there's something we call autonomic tone it's it's been you know very rigorously studied in in PTSD and this is basically your your fight or flight and relaxation syndromes we call the sympathetic parasympathetic um, systems and when you're in the operating environment you're always on you're always sympathetic because you're in a hostile environment where there may be you know, a lot of people who are, are frankly trying to kill you. It's not easy to shut that off completely. Like when you're always kind of in alpha mode and always trying to protect not just yourself, but your buddies to your left and right. And then you come back home and little things may remind you of that environment. And it's beyond just that kind of uh, memory imprint. It, it, I, I think it's very difficult to rewire yourself kind of at the flip of the switch. And so part of, I think, 
establish, reestablishing circadian rhythm, one of the things we talk about a lot is uh, there was discover this discovery. It happened, you know, we we realized this more than a decade ago, but it wasn't really recognized until three people won a Nobel Prize in 2017 uh, for the, the discovery of circadian rhythm and the connection to uh, blue light. And just to unpack that a little bit, blue spectrum light is 450 to 500 nanometer light that occurs with natural sunlight, but does not occur. But it it doesn't occur very well with uh, artificial light, like these these lights that we have indoors. And so you think about our current office working environment, we are going from our beds into a car and blue light is filtered out from natural sunlight behind glass. And so you're immediately behind glass, you drive to work, and then you walk into your office, you're getting almost no natural sunlight. And so that blue light spectrum, the reason it's important is it is the first cue to your body to establish circadian rhythm, such that 14 hours later, you'll get sleepy and get into deep sleep. And so if you deprive yourself of this natural blue light, uh, because you're not going outside, and to give you some sense of the order of magnitude, natural sunlight on a sunny day, if you're outside, is giving you 70,000 lumen of natural blue light spectrum. And if you're inside, you know these lights, even if you get a specific blue light and put it right next to your eyeball, you're getting about 7,000 lumen of blue light. And so it's nowhere near, there's a full order of magnitude that you're not getting. And so you don't establish the circadian rhythm. And so it's no wonder late at night, uh, you may have trouble falling asleep. And if, if you do fall asleep, you may not be getting deep restorative sleep, stage three, stage four, and REM sleep. And so one of the things that we really try to drive home is the importance of getting natural blue light in the morning whether it's taking the dog out for a walk in the park for 30 minutes, having a bowl of cereal outside, or going for a walk with your children. Uh, not always easy to do in the morning, I know, because it's just hard to get people out of bed in the morning. Um, but whatever you can do to get that natural blue light in the morning, that's what sets you up for success, trying to get restful sleep later in the evening. Conversely, we tend to undermine our sleep late at night by being on tablets and uh, mobile phones and, and watching a lot of TV because they do emit a certain amount of blue light. And it is very stimulatory. And so even if you're watching something boring, just the emission of blue light that is coming into your, your, your body, that gives your body an inverse cue to not go into your restful sleep. And so getting blue light in the morning and then trying not to get too much exposure to tablets and mobile phones late at night uh, is part of the formula to getting good restorative sleep. So that would be something that's available to all of us. It's not super well known right now. I think the knowledge is starting to get out. But you know, when we talk about honoring our biology, one of the most important things uh, in terms of establishing circadian rhythm is to uh, understand the impact of blue light on our physiology. I don't know if I fully connected the idea that circadian rhythm is something that happens while during the waking hours. I would always have thought like circadian rhythm was the actual, like just the brain waves of how your brain is when it's sleeping. And like that circadian rhythm is whether or not you get a good night of sleep and different things lead up to that quality of circadian rhythm. But I didn't really realize the idea that you were talking about in the morning, but the way you talked about the morning, like for my story, Four years ago, I found the Miracle Morning by Hel Elrod, and he talks about exercise every morning for part of being your Miracle Morning to start the day. And I remember going on walks in the summer that year. It's like 2015, I think. And I just remember as the sun rose up, like, and it would hit me, like, I would, I kind of equated it to feeling like Superman, like just that sun hitting me. I felt like charged. I felt like renewed that this day can, is, is, can anything is possible kind of feeling. And it probably is connected with that, that blue light hitting me for the first time in the morning. It's an extra dose in a point where I've been depleted of it for a while. A little bit like Superman probably during the nighttime. There's never been an episode that I know of where Superman struggles at night, but I struggle at night. And that morning burst of sun is, has just been, was I remember very strongly and it makes sense now of why it was so impactful in the mornings. Yeah. And there's, there's so much downrange um, impact both health-wise and, and behavioral-wise uh, to your health, where if, if you get just one poor night of sleep, you know, that impacts your, 
emotional resilience, your ability to handle stress. Chronic sleep deprivation can lead to very negative health outcomes in terms of cardiovascular health, cerebrovascular health. You know, there's been strong linkages to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease uh, related to chronic sleep deprivation. And so if there was one very simple thing we can all do to help ourselves, it would be to protect our sleep, try to go to sleep at the same time every night, not easy with kids, I know, but if we go to sleep by 10 o'clock, it sets us up for a lot more success uh, in terms of just our overall health and wellness, never mind sort of having the patience to be a good, to be a good father and parent. So, so yeah, it's, uh, we don't always think about how these little habits build on each other. You know, if, if somebody is kind of chronically not getting good sleep, you can start today and just first thing in the morning, go outside, get that natural sunlight. You know, this is a summertime, so it's a good time to do it. Step one, and then just be mindful in the evening time at that first sign of evening somnolence. If you're yawning and feeling tired, experiencing what's called a melatonin spike, and you've got about 30 to 40 minutes to get in bed. And if you do that, you will naturally fall into stage three, stage four sleep very quickly. And those are the periods where you're getting really restorative sleep. That's how you kind of, you set up your body. There's 5,000 plus years of evolution that, that is kind of born into our DNA. And we can't in just one generation try to flip that switch and stay awake until four or five o'clock in the morning and expect to be uh, functioning at a high level the next day. It's very hard to do. So I'm going to open up and be a little bit vulnerable and ask you to coach me through something. So since January 27th, when I lost my job, every morning I've essentially, since pretty much the Marine Corps, every morning I had somewhere where I was required to be. Either a job, the military, it was PT downstairs, whatever it may be, I always had somewhere to be. And ever since January 27th, I probably have like a first 15 minute, kind of like almost depression that I have to kind of relive through of almost the loss of what happened on January 27th. And it's still to this day, something that I still struggle with. I've tried different things. I've tried different going to bed on certain times and every morning, like I hasn't really affected, like I've had a few good wins where I'll get out of bed and conquer the morning. But then like right back to the next day, like the heaviness of what is kind of going through my mind. I almost have been wondering if I have some like PTSD trauma that I need to work through in like maybe a therapy session with someone. But I'm wondering in my case, like where I'm dealing with like an emotional wake up versus kind of like, um, I don't feel rested either. I've taken some, some supplements as well to try to help, but it still hasn't really, it helps me go to bed and helps me slow down my mind. Cause I have a very like over analytical mind. So oftentimes I'm in bed and I'm just racing through all the scenarios where my life could end up the way I want it. Kind of like a fear-based mindset going to bed. And then I wake up with that fear and I'm like, oh man. I don't figure this out, this dream life that I'm creating is going to collapse on me and I have to rebuild myself every day. Sure. And so if I could ask you a, a couple of questions. I opened the door here, so I'm an open book on it. <laughs> are, are you getting good quality of sleep when you wake up? Do you feel rested or hang up with a lot of anxiety? Or My goal is to be up at five and oftentimes at five, I'm not. And usually I naturally wake up by 6.30 and I do feel fairly well rested. I feel a little bit groggy, but I come downstairs and I'm usually able to function and do different things. And, but at that 5am goal, when I really want to, like the world just, I just convinced myself it's better to go back in bed and where it's safe and warm. Can you tell me a little bit about your exercise regimen and anything you're doing in terms of being sort of conscious about your nutrition and, and what kind of fuel you're putting in your body? So when I was doing that 75 hard challenge that you were talking about, I was following a very stringent diet, no, no cheat meals, no sweets, no really any candy. It was meats, veggies, fish, fruits, vegetables. And for pretty much 75 days is kind of like, it was kind of like my, my experiment also at the same time to try to, to conquer this. And at, every morning I had to do a workout inside and outside. So I was doing two workouts of 45 minute each, each day that one was a T25 from Beachbody in the morning. And I was doing an outdoor walk every day in the afternoon for 75 days. And it still never really, I never really felt like I was making an impact. I would maybe feel a little bit more tired because I was kind of exhausting my body a little bit more during the day. But at the same time, I never really felt like that could shake that feeling during the morning. Sure. Okay. And, and then sort of last question in terms of reemployment, 
can you walk me through a little bit about, uh, and I'm sure you've sort of looked around, but do you know kind of what the next step is going to be or what kind of vocation or work you want to get into? I do know that. And it, it's even pretty clear from my case. So I want to be a stay-at-home dad. I want to be a professional speaker. I want to have a life where I'm anchored as a dad first and everything else is secondary. I want to travel three or four times a month, professionally speaking, come home and be dad and be that center stone. And I never want to have to trade time and money for memories with my kids ever again for a paycheck. And so I have that clear vision and I've tried printing uh, affirmations out before I go to bed. I've tried putting something there by my phone, by my alarm clock so that I see it as a reminder. Like if I don't do this, I'm going to have to go back and get a job. So I feel like I have clarity on where I want to go, but it's kind of almost this fear that it's all going to collapse and I won't be able to, to get there. Sure. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like you're doing almost all the right things. And so I applaud you for, I almost, uh, I'm, I'm almost down to, I just need time. Like maybe this is just something. And I do feel time has helped. Like in April, there was a couple job opportunities coming and I almost had it like a anxiety attack because I didn't want to go back. I was so scared of being trapped in a job and I don't have that feeling anymore. Like I had a couple of job opportunities come that didn't work out for me, but I didn't have that anxiety of being trapped in a job where I didn't want to be. And I think that's some of it as well. Like I felt trapped for many years at that job and wasn't able to escape and felt like I was just going to sit here and rot at that job for so long that I never want to feel that again. And the fear of having to feel that again, if something doesn't work out or if the universe doesn't work the way I'm trying to create it, like, that fear has been very powerful for me to not go backwards, but go forwards. Well, and so I think there's sort of two different questions embedded in, in uh, the one, you know, the first is biologically, is there anything that can be done to sort of improve how the day starts? And, you know, I think that the affirmations at night, all that is really positive. I would say starting out the day, maybe just try for a week when you do get up, getting outside, whether it's going for a hike to get some fresh air or, you know, reading a good book outdoors, but just establishing your circadian rhythm and getting that blue light in the morning, maybe a mechanism uh, where you set yourself up for success in terms of getting a more restful night of sleep in the evening time. So I, I would say just as a positive habit to develop, that may be a good one. Um, I was doing, so during the 75 hard, something I committed to on top of that was meditating. And so you have to read 10 pages in a book every morning. So I would wake up, I would come downstairs, I would get a cup of water. I started then getting a pre-workout supplement. So I would start drinking that while I was meditating and reading. And so every morning for those 75 days, I was doing the calm app, 10 minutes of meditation. But I often what, and maybe you're speaking to some of what I haven't fully tried is I haven't really gone all in on getting moving first thing. And before when I, I even had a gym habit before losing my job where at 5am I had to be at the gym because I could get 45 minutes in, I could get home, I could help get the kids ready. Like it, it had to be at the gym 5am. Otherwise I couldn't get my workout out in. So I was choosing to work out first before doing anything else. And now I was choosing to sit first and I never fully woke up from that. And I've, I've been thinking about redoing it, but I like the idea of meditating in the morning, but I don't know if it's been serving me in the right way that it may for others. No, I think, you know, that I think anytime during the day, if you build in the time, that's a positive. Be so focused on, should I be doing it in the morning or the evening? I, there's nothing that precludes you from, but I, I think getting outside, and I know in Wisconsin during the winter, it may be a little bit challenging, but hopefully uh, the weather's uh, accommodating now. So just in terms of the biology component, I would say that may be uh, an important component to to getting the, the more restorative sleep. And then, of course, trying to get into a routine of, of sleeping well uh, at the same time every night and waking up in the morning at the same time. The other piece that I think, and we haven't spent enough time for me to know you well enough or to have a, you know, a really strong opinion. Um, I'm more using myself as a case study for pe- for listeners that may have some threads of what I'm going through that... I'm sure in some small way, I've done something that someone else hasn't yet. So, Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of uh, my veteran friends, when we talk, we miss is is sort of this mission and purpose. You know, when you're in service, you're always 
serving the country and you wake up with a sense of pride every morning. Uh, you've got your community and um, all those things. Uh, we don't always recognize it at the time and, and maybe we take for granted, but all those things are very positive and affirming. You know, the connectedness of your unit, you know, the routine of coming into a place that's familiar every morning, pride you have in, in your work. And so we, in many ways, have to find replacements for that. And even if it's a job, I don't know that that necessarily replaces the void of kind of having a mission and a purpose. And so there has to be some introspection. Of- I think what I, I think that not having a place to go is a stay at home dad. There's no place to go except downstairs to make breakfast. And that's, I like that purpose. And I like that, like, I'm fully accepted. Like I want this to be my life for the next few years, but it's not a place to go. And I don't think I realized how much that place to go was driving my, my routines and my behaviors and even my thought patterns. Like as long as I had a place to go, life was going to be okay. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there would be, maybe part of what may be missing is enrichment from a personal growth uh, perspective. And it's not to say, you know, being a dad is uh, fully enriching and can take infinite amounts of time and, and energy, but whether it's as simple as reading a spectacular book that's allowing you to look into sort of different professions and different, you know, areas of the world, you know, going to a certain place uh, each day, you know, that uh, whether it's a job, it sounded like you were close to pulling the trigger on a few jobs and decided not to do it. If there is something that really speaks to you of make some money to help do something for, for the kids, but it also speaks to you on a personal level, that may be part of the the missing component. But yeah, everyone is kind of unique and it's hard to know exactly uh, uh, what would fill that void. But, uh, but yeah, it doesn't have to be there. You know, you can be passionate about things. And, you know, I think this podcast is certainly one of those. It, it definitely is that like, once I get myself through the depression, I have no problem throughout the day doing a lot of fun things and having motivation and doing big ideas. But it's that first like overwhelming feeling from the, like the, like the brain just wakes up like with the weight of the world on it. And it's like, you're not going to get this figured out. And then it has to kind of reprogram like, yeah, you got it. You figure it out every day. And it's like Groundhog's Day almost. It, it, it's like that you wake up and you're like, oh, damn, it's the same day as yesterday. Or that feeling in the beginning is still the same day as it was in like January 27th. Do you find like what, what I'm talking about where it's often more related to a feeling than like an actual an emotion? And I say that as I think about the similarities in those two words, but I think like a lot of times like PTSD, like there's a lot of very strong fear, anxiety, but in this case, it's just kind of like a feeling of fear more. Is that the same thing as what your treatments and different processes work through for veterans that maybe they don't even realize that just because you don't have PTSD with something traumatic happening to you where you assimilated a bunch of life in a short amount of time, you can still have feelings that kind of clog the pipes and prevent you from kind of having that good night's sleep like I'm working through? You know, there's similarities. You know, post-traumatic stress is usually more linked to there There was kind of a sentinel event that triggers certain types of emotions and uh, that can be debilitating. You know, I think that there is room for the emotional response you have to a highly stressful event. I think that's normal and that's part of the human experience. If you lose a friend or uh, a loved one, I don't necessarily view that as disorder. I, I think where it starts to become a little bit challenging is when that really uh, begins to impair function or that you're not able to form activities of daily life and day to day. But, you know, what you're sharing, you know, being willing to uh, kind of get vulnerable, um, you know, I think that's an important part of this healing journey. And, um, you know, you'd mentioned in your sort of perfect vision uh, being able to be a stay-at-home dad, but also uh, going on a speaking circuit, you know, even doing work, you wake up and uh, you're doing something to improve your speaking career, whether that's getting coaching from a Toastmasters club or, or, or reading book or getting classes, you know, anything that's moving forward, uh, that vision, that may change the overall feeling because you're making progress and you're, you're building momentum towards a certain goal. I appreciate that. That I feel like some of it 
a lot of it is just the, the time and reprogramming because I haven't really thought about it until you were talking that a lot of it is like going from active duty to civilian. You're refiguring out an entire new operating system and you're rewiring it. And in my case, I've never been, and I remember even when it first happened. So Valentine's Day was the last day in the office. And for those first three weeks before a lockdown hit, every day was kind of like, okay, I can figure this out. Okay, I can figure it out. And it was just trying to re-engineer. How can I get dinner done? How can I get the laundry done? How can I pick up my kids on time? How can I be back for the bus? How can I get my workout in? And it was this constant pressure of trying to rebuild it because I kept telling myself, I've never lived this life ever. I desire it, so I'm going to keep learning. But it took a constant evolution of just reiterating over and over. And like in the summer, like I feel like I've kind of hit my heyday a little bit where I've got a good rhythm. We go to the parks in the morning. We go on multiple bike rides during the day. That just came through keep trying to reiterating it and that this kind of peace in the morning will eventually fade away, I feel, as I fall into my natural sink as being a stay-at-home dad. And almost I feel like it's it's a little bit maybe related to the, the, the out-of-frequencies where you have my old frequency that was operating and I'm trying to get this vibration on this lower frequency operated at the same level. And as long as there's that difference, there's kind of that feeling like something is difficult or is try or it probably is the brain's going away from what it was comfortable with forever into something that it's not comfort every day. And so it's just my brain trying to keep me safe, maybe in the morning, like saying, Hey, you need to go back to where it was nice and cozy and you had a paycheck and you life was easy for you, even though it wasn't. And there's probably a lot of that relationship just from those two, that idea of the frequencies and that as I power up and get this new frequency running at a higher level, it'll eventually fall into sync. Yeah. And, and sometimes that discomfort can be a good thing because it means you're challenging yourself in new ways and uh, doing something that's uh, kind of by nature outside of your comfort zone. When you were talking about the frequencies, there was something that really hit me as we were just unpacking my emotions. So many times when dads come home and what I've learned through interviewing so many dads is their ability to feel the frequency of their own emotions of whatever it may be. Like their kids are a different frequency of emotions and they're very usually all over the place, very much sinusoidal, probably highs and lows. And, and it's that fear of that f- frequency of what your kids are feeling that almost like unjives with what you're feeling. And I know from many dads coming home by not even just acknowledging their feelings, their kids' emotions generally scare them to the point where they pull back from their family because they don't feel like they can fall into sync or even stay in control of their own thoughts and feelings and words and emotions when they're around such a, a high vibration of a frequency like your kids being kids. And do you, do you find that same th- idea that when you're trying to come back home, a lot of it is when you run into family in this particular case, that the, the dads struggle to, to, because the world is more untethered than their mind even. And they have a hard time coming back to that. Yeah. And so this is, I think, a really important topic is one of the things I've learned over time is uh, the neurological development of children uh, varies quite widely. And so I remember um, a a very good friend of mine was kind of crushed because his daughter had kind of become addicted to social media and Instagram and, you know, a young girl, 12, 13 years old, and there's nothing wildly inappropriate, but they had advised her that, you know, she couldn't use Instagram, but she still did. And he was very upset. And I kind of walked him through, it, it's a bit unfair, the environment our children are growing up in now compared to the environment we grew up with. The prefrontal cortex, which is executive function, uh, and a lot of the associated abilities with that is underdeveloped at that age. And so they don't have the same kind of impulse control that we have as adults. And so we may logically, our capacity for deductive reasoning may lead us to why can't my child exhibit the kind of discipline to not do these things? Whereas you've got very sophisticated engineers at these social media companies who are trying to make this as addictive as possible. It's almost an impossible situation for our children. Even people at Xbox and PlayStation, like or entertainment sports, like all of those guys, Fortnite. Exactly. And and so I think as parents, we have to understand that the deck is a little bit stacked 
against our children, we do need to protect them. And this is where the adults have to come into play and meter, you know, and there's no absolute right or wrong answer for when to introduce these things to children. And I certainly, you know, am on in no position to be on a pedestal. I've made so many mistakes as a parent. It's embarrassing. But, um, you know, if there's one bit of wisdom I could impart uh, upon the group is, is that, you know, children all develop very differently. Uh, even boys compared to girls is, you know, is, is two men now we, we can share. Like, I was so freaking immature, you know, when I was a kid. And if I was exposed to uh, the kind of things that children have access to today, whether it's uh, a tablet or an iPhone, I was hooked to my Atari 2600 when I was a kid. And um, I was hooked I to my PlayStation. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of things they have access to now are, are very difficult. And so um, not only is it difficult, I think. Even the app store on the iPad, like you actually had to save up $50 to go get a game to get addicted to. Now you only need $1.99. Yeah. And the rewards that they, so you know, there, there's very sophisticated algorithms to know when to give somebody a reward um, on a video game to keep them glued to that a bit longer. And so, you know, while while I may get very upset that my kid's been playing on their iPad for the last five hours and it may boggle my mind, how can you be doing that and not go for a bike ride? There's another part of me that understands that it was engineered to do exactly that. And there are people who are very smart uh, about designing uh, games or puzzles or, you know, YouTube videos, whatever it may be, uh, to keep people's attention very focused on it. And so uh, I find, you know, just that understanding allows me to not get as angry as I otherwise might. You know, I know that my children have not developed that level of sophistication yet. And it's really the onus of responsibilities on me and my wife uh, to control that and to monitor how much time they're on it. Uh, because left to their own devices, they could be on those things all day. It is a challenging environment for us to be raising children in. At the same time, a blessing. You know, there's many good educational apps. There's uh, great things. It's like every tool. There's always two sides of it, whether it be a gun, whether it be the internet, whether it be Facebook, all of them have a positive and the negative. And they all, it's, you have to parent to both sides of it as well. That's exactly right. And spending the time sitting down with the kids to explain the hazards that are associated with these, whether social media platforms or Minecraft or Roblox. My son, my daughter just started Roblox and now she's asking for road bucks. Oh, it's dangerous. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> my pocketbook is a lot lighter thanks to Roblox, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, these things are profoundly addictive. And, and so I think we need to, you know, educate and train our children that, you know, they're adults who are very good at designing these games and you have to build in breaks for yourself to go do other things, hopefully things that are outdoors and active instead of uh, being sedentary and sitting in front of a screen all day. You remind me that there's something there that I always say that I even tell my daughter, like I, when she's trying to understand something, I'm like, you know how you're trying to figure out how to be eight year old? Well, daddy's trying to figure out how to be 35. And I've never lived this day before. And then there's days I'm not going to get it right. Just like there's days that you're not. But then remembering as you're like what you're talking about, remembering that they're eight years old and they've never lived this day before. They have none of the experiences between eight and 35 that I do to help add the depth or make better decisions. And you need to have that perspective. Like you can't just assume even vocabulary has been something that I made the mistake, like talking about what do you think the definition of responsibility is like that's a word i use all the time but i was actually never clarifying what that actual definition meant and just assuming she knew what it meant even though i had actually never sat down and talked about it and one of the things i've been recently playing with like in the last week so this is still in the r&d lab but when it talks about the time management with the tablet i've been using and talking about how at some point you're going to be told i need you to get on the bus at 8:10 and make sure your brother gets on there and you're going to need to manage whatever you're doing and keep an eye on the clock. Well, we've been practicing on the iPad that she has to be done at a certain time and she needs to practice being done on her own because this is a kind of a training for something bigger and that there's all these little tasks that I, I give her to help prepare. And I talk about how, well, you think this is silly and stupid that you're doing now. This is really preparing for the day that I need to tell you to turn the oven on at four o'clock and not forget and get sucked into TV. 
And it's those little kind of like extrapolating lessons where I break it down. And we usually talk about it at night before going to bed about what worked that day, what didn't, what she's doing wrong, or how can we change it? And I find the bedtime is the best time to kind of unwind the whole day, positive or negative, and talk about it and maybe unpack a little deeper about why certain things happen because usually emotions are calm and things can be talked about in a very calm manner. Yeah. And uh, you reminded me, there's, there's a book I reference a lot. It's called uh, The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck, New York Times bestseller. But he coined a phrase that really stuck with me in, in terms of parenting. And he was recommending that we all try to avoid undisciplined discipline. And what he means by that is when you're trying to have a moment with a child, but it's born out of anger or frustration and you're yelling or whatever it might be, you're out of control. It's undisciplined you're trying to administer discipline, but it is itself undisciplined. Children tend not to connect with that, understandably. And you can think for ourselves, uh, when our parents may have been disciplining us, if it's born out of anger, many times you just go into fear mode, you go into a cocoon. Whereas if it's nurturing discipline, where you sit down and you huddle and you're at their eye level and you say, hey, this is why I want, this is an important lesson for you. And this is why I want you to do this, you know, and here are some of the risks and hazards when we exhibit this kind of behavior, you know, that's the kind of thing that hopefully will stick and that you will see legitimate behavior change. Because ultimately, as parents, that's what we're striving for is to modify behavior to make it more healthy and constructive. And how we convey that message makes all the difference. Um, So, uh, and I know for myself in, in moments of anger, Many times I find myself as a parent being undisciplined and I have to remind myself to come back to this message at the right time when I'm in a better frame of mind. It's not easy to do. I got two parting questions I want to wrap up for. The first one is, what did having four daughters teach you about being a father? (laughs) So I'm really lucky. All of my girls are, are very well behaved and you know, the saying, I remember when each of them was born, some, at least one person would say, you know, daughters are for dads and, you know, they, they've really been a blessing, but um, I do have one that's entering her teenage years. And I know, you know, they've become more boys interested in her. Uh, this is where I start to lean on my Marine buddies to, uh, to intimidate and scare those, those guys off. But no, it, you know, in all seriousness, I think it does uh, remind me of the incredible responsibility we have because, if nothing else, we are teaching our children by example what their future relationships will be like. And so I, I try to always treat my wife with respect and dignity because that's how I want my daughter to be treated. And when she is looking for somebody to date, you know, I want it to be somebody who uh, exhibits those traits. And so it, it's kind of uh, a cruel trick of nature that, you know, our, our children will model themselves after us as flawed and imperfect as we are. But that's something that I always try to keep in mind, my daughters. What you're speaking there is something that Dr. Meg Meeker talks about a lot, that the the standard that your life is will be the standard that your daughter seeks in a guy. And if he doesn't live up to that standard, it may take a year or two, but she will figure out what he's not and who she, who he is. And I've always joked that like the dad of the shotgun at the door is the dad that set the bar very low. Like if you lived a very elite life and you lived how you represented, how you treat your wife and how you treat her and how, what a loving relationship looks like, because your first love that your daughter has is one with you. And so that love is often the model of what she's looking for in the world. As long as you live that and set a good example for it, like the universe almost always works out the way that it's supposed to, because they will always try to find someone that lives up to my dad. And the second question, if someone wants to to get in touch with the technology to help someone with what we talked about earlier, where's the best place to go to get in touch with some of the resources that the M-E-R-T can help with? There's two websites I would um, uh, link to. One is uh, waveneuro.com, just as it sounds, W-A-V-E-N-E-U-R-O.com. And that's the technology company. And the second website, which will give locations where they can get the treatment is called braintreatmentcenter.com. And these are just centers that are using the technology. And there, there's a legal construct called the corporate practice of medicine, whereby physicians who are using the technology have to be separated from the technology company. And that's why there's two different websites. The brain treatment centers, and many of them have different names, 
they will list the locations and phone numbers where you can contact them. There's interest in treatment. And so those would be uh, two good locations where people can learn more. I lied. I have one more question. The question I always ask every dad before we wrap up. So out of having five kids, a wide spectrum, 17 to age seven, right? Or eight, no, six, six. What's one parting piece of advice you want to make sure every military dad takes away from the experience of raising five kids and incorporates into their life? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I would say, you know, there's probably a few things. If I had to pick just one, I would say there was an interesting study that was conducted uh, about four years ago, I believe out of NYU, where they surveyed um, over, I think, 10,000 people and they, you know, depending on their success or uh, whether it's financial or academic or whatnot, the trait that correlated most with happiness was not what uh, many people would think. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, going to museums or knowing musical instruments or time spent at the library uh, or you know, being successful in sports. It was none of those things. The most significant trait that resulted in happiness was just feeling loved at home. And uh, uh, it's interesting, like we, and I would say specific to my wife and myself, we focus on a lot of things that it turns out are probably not as important as we believe, whether it's you know, trying to get them into school A or B or, you know, get them the right soccer coach and the right soccer team. Um, at the end of the day, right vacations, the right vacations at the, at the end of the day, what, what turns out mattering the most is just a child feeling like the parents love them. And, uh, I, you know, uh, we all get lost in the day-to-day hustle and bustle and, um, you know, trying to provide for the family, get dinner on the table. And Keep whatnot. up with the Joneses next door. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that those fleeting moments, whether it's just, uh, you know, praying before bedtime or giving them some affirmation if they struggled, you know, in a sport or they got a bad grade, just letting them know that it's okay and this is unconditional love, that sometimes can result in kind of a lifetime of good emotional health. So uh, that'd be, that'd be my, my one message. Well, that is definitely a doozy. And I love it because it speaks to something that I talk to a lot of dads about that the solution to the fear and the emotions and the pain that they often feel, and even the ones that are even maybe close or have potentially almost taken their own life, like the solution to what they're seeking is actually right there in front of them. Like it's almost so clear that they can't see it because they've got like their beer goggles on. But like the love of your kids and your family, like that is capable of grounding you in a way that can get you through the storm that you're, you're, you're riding through. But that's not what our brain says because we're afraid of what we have to feel in order to get that feeling to come to the surface. And we have to go through that process and that darkness to get to that light and love that is our kids. Like no matter how much you had a bad day, your kids are going to give you a hug like they're your hero. And like every day you walk in that door, you're a super dad. No matter what you did, no matter who yelled at you, you're still the exact same person in their eyes. And when you anchor yourself in that, like even on my worst day where I'm feeling not enough and just kind of a failure, the love of my kids and the hugs, like even my youngest daughter, who's four, we have to, I joke, we have a, a morning hug routine. I was like, Hey, daddy hasn't had his morning hug. And I give her the biggest, tightest hug every morning. And I don't know what that's going to do, but I know like her having that grounded love from her father and just that holding like that, does more for both of us throughout the day than anything else that I could do. But that's not what our brain says. And that's not what the advice that's often repeated out there in how to be a good family or even how to create a rich life. Like I often say the richness of my life isn't from money. It's from the richness of my relationships. And it's those relationships that give me the grounding to find my happiness. So we were talking about kind of the depression and and kind of uh, not feeling right in the morning, and, and so if I could touch on there, there's kind of this uh, growing interest in medicine. Of uh, there's there's a subspecialty called integrative medicine. There, there's sort of four pillars that we talk about, and one of them is nutrition and, and just uh, eating right, and the other one is exercise and activity. Third is rest or recovery uh, slash sleep. And it sounds to me like you're doing pretty good with those. There is a fourth that is connectedness. And I found with a lot of my veteran friends that that is a piece that's missing. And it's interesting because 
you can be surrounded by a bunch of people and still not feel truly connected to them in the same way you might have felt when you know you were in service together with a bunch of your your brothers and sisters and even for myself that was hard to replace and it took me quite a while to find my groove i, I don't know if that you may be onto something with there because for since then almost all my interactions are electronic now with covid and at least was having some conversations during quarantine because i would always have zoom meetings with different people but like that like connection over a beer or coffee. Like I was one, I was super looking forward to it, not having a job and being like, Hey, let's go grab lunch with people locally and expanding my physical presence with people here in my hometown. Cause I didn't have a, a strong presence, a few people, but not much. I never had time to do anything with them. So I was like, I was like, yeah, let's just do lunch from somewhere. But that kind of got all shut down with COVID. And I, I do feel that be, like when I am connected in a conversation and someone I'm helping someone or coaching, I feel more alive than any other activity that I do throughout the day because it's, I'm connected. They're sharing something. I'm sharing something. And it's those moments that I probably are, are difficult to create during Corona. So maybe I just have a case of the Corona's, but, or the Corona's is making it harder to, to, to fight back from what maybe I would have already been through if we didn't have the COVID-19 going on. But I like that what you're, we pointed out there, the connectedness, because other than my kids, really, that's where I, I connect myself to the most. Well, you think about how uh, I, I think that even our behaviors changed a little bit when we were younger. If something bad happened in your life and, you know, whatever it might be, um, typically what you would do is you'd call your friend and you'd go meet at the park and you just talk or you throw a ball around or uh, whatever it would be. Uh, but there was a, a level of, I'm going to meet you in person. And that there was that social connection. Now, people may reach for their phone and type out some kind of foolish message on Twitter. or um, But ultimately, whatever the vehicle is, you end up kind of being isolated still. You're not having that human connection that you might have had. It seems small. Facebook sells it, but it doesn't really deliver on it. Yeah. I mean, but you think about cumulatively over time, whereas you would have had what we consider just normal human interaction, we can be very isolated now. And, and we're all somewhere along that continuum of, you know, building in time to meet people for coffee. It's, it's hard to do these days with COVID. So even as deprived as we might've been previously compared to, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it's, it's even more amplified now. And so I think we have to find ways to remain grounded and connected and have that kind of uh, regular interaction as veterans, we sort of take for granted that that was built into our workplace. Yeah, we don't really have any idea how much we needed that tribe or even how to recreate. Like, I wish, I talk about this, like the number one thing I wish TAPS told me on the way out was the amount of opportunity you're going to feel in life is directly proportional to the amount of strangers that you talk to daily. But nothing that they tell you has anything to do with build the network, build relationships, connect with people, help them out, figure out what they need and then make it happen. Like, that is how you can like create so much abundance in your life. But I mean, it took me 15 years to figure that operating code out. And none of it was the GI bill. None of it was within a, getting a suit and interviewing a job. Like those were all required to keep the lights on. But like those, like when I go to a conference, I like it's a euphoria almost. I have a hangover when I come home because you're connected with like-minded people. You all drink the same type of excitement. They have the same energy it's almost you're weeding out all the the duds that aren't going to be kind of like good conversationalist. And like, it's just a high of intense, awesome conversations that I come back with now that's even gone too. So luckily I was at two conferences right before COVID hit. So I was in DC and Orlando before everything hit. So I got my, my, my fix in, but it still hasn't lasted through the last six months. Hopefully, uh, Sometime in the not too distant future, you'll get uh, you'll get to go to those conferences again and reconnect with people who, and hopefully, as one of them is in California, where we can share a beer. Actually, one of them was supposed to be in California. I was going to be there was a, a dad conference in Los Angeles in October. Now that's a uh, gone virtual. So, but I will remember you that you're in Los Angeles, and I will look you up for a coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, give me a ring. I would love to uh, meet up and swap dad stories. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you reaching out to come on the podcast. I love your story. I love what you're doing and what you're working on. And know that every time you help a dad process a feeling or get a good night's sleep, you 
are changing a family tree forever because when you allow that branch to have life, there is so much abundance of leaves that can grow from that, that you don't actually even really realize all of the new branches of that tree that can grow when you give the gift of sleep and a person's brain to function in a normal way. So you are changing lives in ways that, uh, and I've heard, we were talking about legacy before we hit record, that legacy is planting seeds in a garden that you don't get to see grow. Often, I feel like that's what your technology is doing, is planting seeds that you don't get to see grow, but they're creating a legacy that lives long, well past Eric Wan. I truly appreciate that. And uh, yeah, uh, the same, um, back to you. You know, I think that the message that you're putting out through your podcast and your work is such vast importance and a wide audience. So thank you for what you're doing as well. Thank you guys for checking out this week's episode with Eric Wan. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. This conversation opened up my world too. Let's say it, a whole world that I never knew really existed. Now, let's be honest. I knew it existed, but I knew nothing about it. So I feel like a better, more educated person. I can help more dads. And I hope that if you thought this message resonated, share it with a friend because that's how this podcast grows. If you know that there is a veteran out there or a friend that needs this type of help, reach out, check out the show notes because those resources that we talked about are all there. The two websites we talked about, Wave Neuroscience and Brain Treatment Centers. Also, if you want to check out the link to that Harvard Business Review article about dads becoming better dads during COVID, I've got a link for you down there in the show notes. And if you haven't left a review on iTunes, I read every single one of those reviews. They mean the world to me. They help fuel my passion for why I do this podcast. And if you're getting any value out of this, please share it like it, and review us on iTunes. And with that, I will talk to you guys again on Friday.